This morning we find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, closing in on the end of this wonderful Gospel. And uh, it's so uh, exciting to be able to uh, be working toward the the end of this book. We've been in it for uh, quite a few years. I don't know. I I don't know how long. (laughs) 201 messages, whatever that is. Giving Christmases and all that stuff, breaking it up. But we're coming down to the end here. And uh, we find ourselves in Matthew 27, verses 45 to 56. Matthew 27, 45 to 56. I'll go ahead and read that text for us. You can follow along in your Bibles. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me, forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, And what took place? They were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And there were were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and and Joseph, and the mother of sons of Zebedee. As we look at this text here this morning, when you think of the death of Christ, you think of a cross. Um, you think of maybe something you hang around your neck or something that's hanging on your wall in your home. But the cross was an instrument of execution. The cross was an instrument of death. The, you wouldn't find anybody wearing a cross around their neck back in the time of Jesus. That would be an offense to many people. Uh, history tells us that there were over 30,000 Jews crucified by the Roman government during the time of Christ. And you stop and you ask the question, if there are that many people crucified, why do we focus so much on the death of Christ? It's just another crucifixion. I mean, when you think of the Gospels' accounts of of this crucifixion, even the thieves on each side of Christ, as they were being executed, we don't even know their names. And yet, we're reminded over and over again throughout the Scriptures of Christ and his death. And I think one of the reasons that is, is that people don't really understand the significance of the death of Christ. I mean, they celebrate it as Christians, just like we celebrate Christmas, you celebrate the death, you celebrate the resurrection, we have Passion Week, we do all that. But just a way of introduction... I just want to remind you, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3.15, there's a promise, and it says that there will be a coming one called the seed of woman. And everyone knows that it's the man, not the woman, who has the seed in procreation. And this title then refers to a virgin birth. And verse 15 says there will be one born of a woman who would bruise the serpent's head, speaking of Satan, even though he would be bruised in the heel. And while Christ was being bruised on the cross, and we've looked at that in the last couple of weeks, he was fatally bruising the one who was bruising him. And so we want to learn about the meaning of the cross. And you can do that even in the Old Testament through the lives of Abraham and Isaac, God called on Abraham to offer his son on the altar as a sacrifice. And that introduces us to the sacrificial system. He was ready to kill his son. Abraham discovered that God provided an alternative. 
that ram who, which was caught in the, in the bushes there. And so we learned about the substitutionary provision, the substitutionary death. So all the Mosaic law, all the ceremonies, all the sacrifices that go along with that, it comes down to the need for a blood sacrifice to atone for sin. And there's a lot of other passages that you could go through if we had time in the Old Testament that talk about other details about the cross. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12. But we even see the meaning of the cross kind of laid out for us in the New Testament. In Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul tells us that God made Christ a curse for us when he was put on the cross. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.18 says that he who was just suffered the sins of the unjust. And even in uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, the Apostle John describes Jesus, as we sang about, the lamb that was slain. Hebrews 10.10 tells us that Christ was offered once for the sins of the world. And so if you want to know the meaning of the cross, all you have to do is read your Bible. From beginning to end, you see the cross throughout it. But here in Matthew 27, we see not only the cross and the death of Christ, but we also see the miracles. It's almost the testimony of God testifying to the validity of this death on the cross. Because like I said, there was 30,000 other people who were crucified at this time. But none of them had these miracles accompany their deaths. Only Christ did. And so when we look at these these miracles, we want to remember that, that God is really, in a way, uh, there, present at the crucifixion through some of these miracles that we're going to look at today. The first one there, first subject matter, we're talking about these signs that we see taking place. The first one deals with the sun. It says in verse 45, now about the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land. So there was a darkness such as the world has ever, ever known before. Luke chapter 2, verses 9 to 11 tells us that when Christ was born, there was a great light in the sky. The prophet Isaiah said to the, that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles in Isaiah 49, 6. In John eight twelve, Jesus himself says what? I am the light of the world, Right? In John 12, 36, he also said, while you have light, believe in the light. So associated with the birth, with the life, with the ministry of Christ is light. But associated with his death, as we're going to look at today, is darkness. Well, look at this time of darkness. From the sixth hour, that's 12 noon in their calendar, to the ninth hour, that's three in the afternoon. The sun became dark. Mark chapter 15, verse 25, tells us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. That's nine in the morning. So Jesus has already gone through all that torturous tormenting and everything, and he's hanging, been hanging on the cross for three hours. And remember, this is in a, a city, outside of a city, that's just teeming with people, packed with people, because it's the Passover. And that time, if you've ever gone out in the garden between noon and 3 o'clock in the summertime, you know that that's pretty much the hottest part of the day. That's the time when the sun is at its peak. Jesus was on the cross for three hours, and he remained there for another three hours until the ninth hour, or three in the afternoon. And during that time, as we looked at in the last couple of weeks, he endured all the mocking, the beating, the jeering, the passerbyers, all the people that were making fun of him. Oh, you know, can't you come down? What's, what's the problem? You're the Savior? Okay, you're the King of the Jews? Yeah, right. And we see there that, that during that, that, that time that Christ was there, he actually breaks his silence. Up to this point, he said very little. And he breaks his silence on the cross three times during the first three hours. The first time was to offer forgiveness in Luke 23, 34. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's talking to the Roman, about the Roman soldiers who were crucifying. Remember, they were the ignorant, uh, wicked. 
they didn't really know Christ from a hole in the ground. They just thought, hey, this is just another crucifixion. Let's get this done. Let's do what we're trained to do. And he tells his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then the second time he breaks his silence is in Luke 23. It's recorded in Luke 23, verse 43, when he turns to the thief who cries out to him and he says, Verily I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Verifying that that thief's last minute desperate cry for a savior was answered. And then the third time is to care for his mother. And we see that in John 19, verse 26. You have the apostle John, his mother, and Mary standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus is hanging there. And knowing that they would be lost without him, he committed them to each other. And those three occasions, during those first three hours, when Christ basically broke his silence. But what was this darkness that happened? Was this just a dust cloud that covered the sun? What was it? Well, we can understand it when we look into the Scripture. The Greek word there actually for land, it says there it covered uh, the land, literally, it can be translated earth. Gay is the word. And so we don't know, technically, whether this darkness covered just Israel, whether it just covered Jerusalem. We don't know. There's a lot of different examples in the Bible about how God can do this in Exodus chapter 10. It tells us that God made it dark just in the land of Egypt, miraculously, so he can localize darkness somehow. In Joshua chapter 10, we see that the Lord made the sun actually stand still, which boggles our mind. 2 Kings chapter 20 talks about a shadow on a sundial that actually went in reverse, it went backwards, so King Hezekiah could recover from his illness. And so there's a lot of different scenarios here that could play out. In even secular history, there's a, a note that you can, can, uh, that was being made between Pilate and the, the, the Tiberius there. And it, basically he's talking about in this note, he's saying, hey, I just want to let you know, man, it's dark everywhere. <laughs> And so, apparently, secular history even supports that this darkness was not just localized to this single area. It was a pretty large area, if not the whole earth. So I don't think it was just a cloud or something like that. Um, actually, it couldn't be that because in Luke twenty three forty five, Luke records, the sun was darkened, it says. The sun was darkened. That word darkened there, eclipo, we get the word eclipse from. And what that means is not just a simple eclipse. As a matter of fact, historians have gone back and said, well, maybe it was an eclipse. But you know what? They can track all that and they say, no, you know, to have an eclipse, you have to have the the sun and the moon in the same area there. And they weren't. They were at at the opposite ends. So it wasn't a, a natural eclipse like we know it. But that word literally means to utterly fail. So apparently, somehow, God caused the sun for those three hours to supernaturally turn off. To keep it from allowing its light to penetrate the darkness of earth. And you say, well, if that happened, wouldn't there be a lot of problems? Yeah, we wouldn't be here if the sun went out for three hours. It just physically, we wouldn't be here. So somehow God allowed the light from the sun to stop, but all the other attributes of the sun to continue, which is even more of a miracle. Somehow he turned out the sun and yet sustained the world. So it wasn't technically an eclipse, but it literally means that the sun failed for those three hours. That would shake you up a little bit. I mean, can you imagine if all of a sudden, boom, it was dark outside? Right now? I mean, wouldn't you be wondering, what's going on? What's happening? And I'm not talking just like the sun going down. It it speaks of utter darkness. It was like as dark as this is midnight. That would be 
a little freaky. That would cause people to pause a little bit. What did we just do? And so the extent of that, that, that darkness, I think, was probably worldwide. And I think the meaning of the darkness is clear. You can, you can see, you know, there's no explanation here when you read the text in the Gospels. It doesn't say, and here's why it got dark. It doesn't say that. And the reason it doesn't say that is because it doesn't need to. They understood what darkness meant. Darkness meant the judgment of God was falling. That was very a common view in Judaism and in the world at that time. The rabbis taught that the, the sun's failing indicated God's judgment on the world for committing a great crime. That's what they literally taught. And so when the lights went out, everybody thought, wow, what crime was just committed? Wow, we just killed this man. Maybe he was who he said he was. And so what was God saying here? In Isaiah 5, verses 26 to 30, Isaiah predicted the coming judgment on Israel when its life would be choked out, its people would be taken into captivity. And it described it as a time of darkness, a time of sorrow. Over in Isaiah 13, Isaiah talks about the final judgment of God upon the world. And he says, The stars of the heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, and the sun shall be darkened, in its going forth, and the moon shall not cause its light to shine. And I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. So God associates darkness with judgment. Even in Matthew chapter 24, when we were going through the prophetic uh, chapters there, it says in verses 29 to 30, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give its light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. So all those things kind of relate to God's judgment. And you can see that over and over and over again. The darkness at the crucifixion, beloved, the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ here, represents God's divine judgment. That's what it represents. The cross became a place for the pouring out of God's wrath on His Son. Remember, Jesus wasn't the only one that was crucified. This didn't happen at every crucifixion. It only happened at His. So He was not some well-meaning martyr, you might say. He was the recipient of the divine judgment that we deserve. It's God's judgment of sin. So it's a lot more than just a man dying on a cross, isn't it? You see that this darkness, such as the world has never known, depicts the judgment of God. Secondly, we see here a despair that was never known before in verses 46 and 49. It says, In about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabatini. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Interesting, the first part of that, Eli, Eli, is Hebrew. Lama Sabatini is Aramaic. So he literally says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People there understood what he was doing. He was quoting Psalm 22.1. They knew that very well. And even though Jews... knew Hebrew, they also knew Aramaic. So they knew exactly what he was saying. And here, God the Father turns his back on his Son. Tradition says that Martin Luther actually went into seclusion to try to understand what that means. He just went into seclusion. And as you read about it, it says that he came out more confused than when he began. How can God turn his back on God? How can that even happen? See, after experiencing the fury of God, Jesus cries out as he is separated from God. That'll keep you up at night trying to figure that one out. Why was Jesus separated from God? Habakkuk 1.13 says this about God. Thou art 
of pure eyes than to behold evil. And you can't look on iniquity. God turned his back on Jesus because he can't look on sin. What does that tell us about the cross? Well, it tells us that Jesus actually became, as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Jesus actually became what? Sin, right? Sin for us. It wasn't the death of a loving martyr. I mean, here, here Christ actually became sin for us. He turned his back on Jesus. He was confirming that very fact that Jesus was bearing our sin. He was bearing the load, the burden of our sin, the payment of our sin. Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was wounded for our transgressions. Romans 4, 25 says that he was delivered for our offenses. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 2, 24 says that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And even 1 Peter 3.18 says Christ also has suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust. 1 John 4.10 says that God sent his son to be a propitiation, an atonement, a payment for our sins. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ was made a curse for us. And Paul says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. See, Christ just didn't bear our sin. The Bible says that Christ became sin. He bore all the sins of all the people of all the ages. Hebrews 2.9 says that he tasted death for every man. See, that's why he came to earth. That's the whole purpose. That's why they were so confused about his ministry and his life because they thought, boy, we've got a great following. This is going to go places. He's going to overthrow the Roman government, get, get them off our backs. And when that didn't happen, everybody turned on him. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it says, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to give his life a ransom for many. God forsook Christ because he cannot look on sin. That's what that means, the separation. Well, what kind of separation did Jesus experience? What was the essence of the separation? He wasn't separated from his divine nature because, you know, he didn't cease to be God or he would have ceased to exist. He was not separated from the Trinity, in essence, or substance, but he was separated in terms of their fellowship, their communion. I mean, when you think about it, when one of your kids sins against you as a mom or dad, they're not, they don't cease to be your child. But you know what? You may not get along with them very well until they repent and come back and say they're sorry. There's that fellowship that's broken there, that communion. In the same way, God had to turn his back on Christ. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says this, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant. See, when Christ became incarnate, when Christ came down and was born and took on flesh, he let go of some of his, you might say, equality with God. He was still God. And Jesus asked his father, to restore the glory he had with him before the world began in John 17, 5. He knew he would experience during his incarnation some form of separation. I don't understand that. I don't think any theologian does. But that's what the Bible says. But at the cross, he experienced even a more profound separation, a separation of utter sinfulness. When God turned his back on Jesus Christ, he was turning from sin and not from Christ. God will always turn his back on sin. That's why Christ hated sin so much. Jesus bore the weight of all the sin of all the ages, of all those who would ever put their faith or trust in him. Yet, I want you to understand, he never once became a sinner. 
Not once. Even though he was in the midst of it continuously, he never desired it. He never had an ambition for it. He hated it. His longing was not for sin, but for, for God, for his Father. And that's why you see him expressing here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What that means is, what was Jesus longing for? He was longing for that relationship with his Father. Soon after that, John tells us in 1930 that he uttered the words, it is finished. Luke tells us that verse, in chapter 23 that he then said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. See, Jesus said that knowing full well that his Father would accept him. Even though he bore sin, he never became a sinner. That's why Hebrews can say in in chapter 4, verse 14, that he was yet without sin. He was made sin, but he did not sin. It's one of those incredible paradoxes of the Christian faith. You also see here not only this, this cry that he cries out with, but also the crowd. You see in verse 47 to 49, some of the bystanders hearing it said, hey, this man is calling for Elijah. They're almost mocking him. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and poured it put it on a reed to give it to him to drink. I mean, it's hard to understand how he could utter anything, to be honest with you, from the cross as a human being. He was beaten down beyond recognition. His body was slowly, physical body was slowly shutting down. He was literally bleeding out on this cross. And yet he still had the strength to utter these words. And it probably wasn't very clear exactly what he said because he's writhing in pain. His mouth is probably parched. And so they're probably thinking, hey, let's give him some, something to wet his whistle a little bit so we can clearly understand what he's saying. They're, they're taunting him. I mean, they knew he didn't say Elijah. That's a totally different word. They knew that. They knew he was saying, my God, my God. But here they are mocking him again. Thinking, yeah, let him cry for God. There he is hanging on the cross. And someone offers him some some relief. They took a sponge, probably one of the Roman soldiers. They were the only ones who were really to have anything to do with the prisoner after they were executed like this. John 19.28 tells us that Jesus said, I thirst. And that kind of leads into what happens here. And that was just part of the crucifixion process. Your body was shutting down and you would, you, your, your mouth would just become parched. Interesting side note, in John 19.29 it says, A sponge was put on a hyssop reed. A hyssop reed maybe measures about 18 inches. So you can see that, you know, these crosses were not way, way up high in the air. They were relatively low, so that when the people could walk by on the street, they could say, hey, this is what happens to you if you cross the Roman government. You were right there, face to face with somebody who was executed almost. And so they gave him this kind of a cheap drink. I mean, was this an act of mercy? We don't know. Maybe some of the Roman soldiers were having their hearts tugged upon even at this time. But then look at what the crowd does in verse 49. They say, no, 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 no. Wait, wait. Don't give them anything. Let us see whether Elijah will come and save them. So they're just, they have this torturous mentality. 
Like, let's just stand here and make fun of him, and hey, if he's God, he can save himself. I mean, you'd think that they would be a little more compassionate for someone who's dying. But that's not what happened. They didn't realize it was the Christ. So they ignored the darkness and they chose to mock Jesus. Then you come to this section here in Matthew where Jesus actually gives up his life. In Matthew 27, verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I mean, it shows you the strength that he had. Jesus broke his silence five times before this, three times in the first three hours. And then he cried out, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And then I thirst. And it says here that somehow he still had the power to cry out with a loud voice. I mean, this shows you that Jesus died on his own terms. He died when he was ready to die. That's why in John 19.30, he cried out, It is finished. Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. See, the death of Christ wasn't at the hands of these executioners. The death of Christ was totally within the power of God. Matthew and John don't really use a a word describing the death of Christ. Luke says that he gave up his spirit. But Jesus sent his spirit away as an act of his own will. He didn't die as the result of just bleeding out or failing in consciousness or anything like that. No, he died at the appropriate time. Jesus' life was not taken from him, the Bible says, that he voluntarily gave it up. Part of that is demonstrated by the speed at which he died. Most people, who they were, when they were crucified like this, the idea was to keep them alive as long as they could. That was the whole purpose of crucifixion, to make them suffer. Sometimes it could be going to hours and days that they would be hanging there on the cross, people mocking them, walking by, seeing the remembrance. If you do anything against the Roman government, here's what's going to happen to you. And they would just torture him the whole time. And he relatively, he died rather quickly, within six hours. So you can see that he had the power to give up his own life. And that's what he says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. John, 7, or John 10, 17 says, I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. See, that, that, what the cross reveals here, beloved, is, is the simple fact that God alone controls both death and life. You can work out in the gym all you want. But when it comes for time, your time to die, you're going to die. And if it's not your time to die, you can get as sick as you want. Sometimes I speak with some older folks and they're in pain and miserable. And they're saying, I don't know why I'm still alive. I say, well, because God doesn't want you dead yet. It's that simple. God has a purpose for you being alive. Don't ever forget that. Yeah, you may be in pain. It may be a miserable experience. Who knows? But some reason, for some reason, God still is giving you life. And if you can figure that purpose out, that would probably make it a little easier. So we see all these things happen under this darkness of the sun. But then we see in verse 51... Another miracle takes place in the sanctuary. It says in verse 51, As soon as he yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, 
in their temple, there was limited access to the temple. Temple was a symbol of God's presence with man. And the, the word temple there doesn't refer to the whole temple. It refers to the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. And that's really where the dwelling place and the symbolic presence of God was. And there was a great curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else so, so that nobody could just run in there. No one could go in there except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's how it worked. And even when he would go in there, they would tie a little string and a bell, make sure nothing happened. And if something did happen, they could pull him back out because nobody was to go in there. And on that day, he would sprinkle blood on the altar for the sins of the people. It's a symbol of God's separation from men. That's what that veil is. It represents, this is holy, you are not holy, you're not allowed to come in here. None of the sacrifices actually atoned for sin in the Old Testament. Sometimes people say, well, how are people saved in the Old Testament? They were saved by faith just like we're saved. They weren't saved by sacrificing animals. That doesn't save you. There's, there's no lamb or goat or any kind of bird or pigeon or whatever that's sufficient to atone for sin. It just doesn't work that way. And so the quicker we figure that out and realize, you know what, I'm just not going to try to do these things because they're not earning me any grace from God. I'm going to trust in the work that he's already done through his son. That makes things go a little easier, but somehow... Most of us can't get that through our heads, so we're constantly trying to please God by doing certain works, thinking that somehow we're earning our salvation through those works. And unfortunately, the only way you're saved is by faith, by grace through faith. It's not of your own works, the Bible says. It's a gift of God, lest we go around boasting about it. No man's righteousness, I don't care if you're the Pope or whoever, is adequate to allow him just free access to God. And so there was that limited access in the sanctuary. Well, after Christ died, all of a sudden, this this limited access turned into unlimited access. When Christ died, it says that veil was ripped from top to bottom. Nobody ripped it. That's why it was ripped from top to bottom. I mean, you're talking about a big piece of fabric here. It's not something that's just, you know, a flimsy piece of fabric like it's on, on the cross there. No, you're talking about a thick piece of fabric, something that you couldn't rip even if you could, tried. But God just wanted to make sure and clear to everybody. And remember, this, this temple area now is filled with people. It's the, you know, Passover. I mean, there's, there's, there's sacrifices going on. All this stuff is happening. And as soon as Christ dies, immediately that temple is breached, is ripped from top to bottom. I mean, talk about being a horror to everyone. That, that would just, you know, here there's a holy of holies exposed. I mean, the priests were probably freaking out big time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, crazy. You, when you think about the culture and how this is, is just being just thrown at them one after the other. In the death of Jesus Christ, God was saying that now there is total access into my holy presence. And the reason is because you come through my son, Christ paid the penalty of this sin. That's why God can throw his arms wide open to sinners. That's why in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us therefore come boldly to the what? Throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, now we can rush into the presence of God that before was forbidden because of the work of Christ on on Calvary. The separation no longer exists because the death of Jesus Christ removed it. There's no more barrier. We have free access to our God, our Creator, through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His work on the cross. And when God ripped that curtain, He pronounced basically this is it for the sacrificial system. You don't need to do this anymore. It ended the sacrifices. It ended the priesthood. And within a matter of a few years, Gentiles would desecrate and trample that temple into 
dust. But that destruction began when God ripped that veil. When Christ died, access to God became a reality. Aren't you glad you, you're, you're in a, a faith that says, you know what, my God is accessible? There's so many faiths that, oh no, you can't, you know, there's a barrier there. Or you've got to do this, or you've got to do that. Even within Christendom, there's certain churches within, within Christendom that teach certain things. You've got to do certain things. You have to do certain sacraments, or you have to do this or that. And then maybe God will love you a little more. And maybe in the end, if you're real lucky, you'll end up somewhere in between. But if you continue to pay money to our church, well, then eventually you'll be ushered into heaven. Crazy. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when that veil was ripped, we have free access to Christ based upon, to God, based upon the price that Christ paid. The only thing you need is a need. That's what that verse says. God is able to help those in time of need. If there's no need, it's like if you're in a pool and you're drowning, but you don't say, help, I'm drowning, nobody's going to help you. You've got to come to a point in time in your own life where you realize, you know what? Yeah, I do have sin in my life. I do understand that there's a God. I understand that He's holy. I understand that He created me. I understand that He gave me a way out of this sinful life, this burden of sin that I could never pay for. He gave me a free pass through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which cost Him dearly. He wants you to put your faith and trust in Him. Stop trying to work this out on your own. Well, then you look at what happens with the stones here in verse 51? It says, after the veil was torn from top to bottom, it says, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The earth shook. There was a great earthquake. At the death of Jesus Christ, all these things are happening, beloved, simultaneously. I mean, can you imagine... We're going to find out what happens to these soldiers. But, I mean, if you're responsible for this, man dying? It literally brought an earthquake. God brought an earthquake as a sign of judgment that literally split open rocks. And created just big breaches in the ground. In the Old Testament, earthquakes frequently preceded God's appearance. They're also a sign of God's judgment. That's very clear. We see that over and over again. And so God, once again, is testifying, hey, this was something you did. This isn't just, you know, some Joe Blow that you just crucified. This is my son. And I want to make sure that you understand that. So there was an earthquake. And then the sepulchers were opened. It says in verse 53, the tombs... Maybe they were opened because of the earthquake. Who knows? Were also opened. And listen to this. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, died, were raised. It doesn't say all of them. It just says some of them, many of them. I mean, this was a real resurrection of bodies, not just spirits. Not all the bodies were raised. Only those that were select Old Testament saints. When Jesus died, somehow their spirits came from the dwelling place that they were in because they died years ago, and they joined with their glorified bodies which came out of these graves. Talking about a, a, a sign, a testimony, that well, something definitely just happened here. And then it says that after his resurrection, in verse 53... It says, the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And then it says in verse 53, in coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I mean, can you imagine what kind of testimony they had about Christ's resurrection? I mean, 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, now Christ is risen from the dead and became the firstfruits of them that slept. So they didn't begin to testify. They didn't begin to speak until after Christ was risen from the dead. And I don't think they spoke to anybody except those who already had faith in Christ, already believed in Him. 
You can look throughout the Bible. There's no biblical evidence ever of, of Christ ever appearing after his resurrection to speak anyone to speak to anyone other than believers. So that would be a pretty incredible thing right there. You have this sun being darkened. You have the veil of the temple being rent in half. You have these earthquake stones opening up. You have these graves opening up. You have people coming out. Amazing. But I think the greatest miracle of all at Calvary was found in verse 54. It says, when the centurion or the, the sentry there, the Roman soldier, and those who were with him, probably four of them there keeping watch, keeping watch over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and what took place. In other words, they saw the earthquake, they felt it, they saw it, and, they, and everything else they probably heard about it and, and, and understood what was taking place at the moment. It says they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. So they're watching him die with dignity and grace. They saw him forgiving his foes. They saw him giving comfort to and forgiveness to a thief who's hanging right there beside him. They saw this man who's dying on a cross making final arrangements for his mother. They saw him talking to God as father, crying out of thirst in his body. And yet he's still going through all this torment physically and even spiritually. And when all this stuff went down, I think God was preparing their heart for what they were about to experience. And when they said, this was the Son of God, there's really the the first fruits among the, the vast army of Gentiles who have made that profession. They came to Christ. They realized what they did. Can you imagine... Talk about repenting. Talk about being moved to repentance. All this stuff happens. You just killed the Son of God. And man, you know, you're definitely going to be touched by that. And some of these guys were. And it indicates that they came to faith in Christ. Well, in verses 55 to 56 here, we see the, the woman who are gathered here. There were many women there, it says looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and also the mother of the the sons of Zebedee, who would be Salome. So you you think of these, these women there, and they're there basically to give comfort. Um, when John took the Lord's mother away, from the scene to his own home, the other woman uh, seemed to have withdrawn to some distance, perhaps fearing for their own safety. But they left the Lord Jesus here to kind of endure the agonies by themselves, but they were there sympathizing with his plight. I hope you see that out of this text, we see that the, the cross really... It's not just something you hang around your neck, a gold little jewelry, uh, but it's the greatest hope for resurrection. Because if it wasn't for the cross, Christ could not have paid for your sin and my sin. And it's because of the cross that we are free from death. We're free to live. We have free access to God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in His kingdom one day, we will have the same kind of bodies, these glorified bodies that came out of these graves, we will possess those in glory. What do you see in the cross? You see the wrath of God and all this supernatural darkness. You see the holiness of God when He turned away from Christ. He couldn't look on sin. You also see the grace and mercy of God 
because it was Christ who voluntarily gave himself up to redeem us unworthy men and women. You see the curtain temple veil that was ripped in two that shows us that we have free access to him. I mean, Jesus is coming back and he will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray that you will be on that team. <laughs> you will be on his side because if you're not, it's not going to be pretty. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the death of Christ. We thank you that he willingly gave up his life for us. Your word tells us that you're too pure, you're too holy to look upon sin. And it was only through Christ that we have gained access. Father, that we would not forget that we can boldly approach your throne of grace. Because we have access through your Son. I pray for each heart here, for each individual here, that they would understand that trusting in their own good works, trusting in their own religious beliefs is not good enough. That Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And when you commit your life to follow Christ, when you acknowledge His forgiveness of your sin, and you put your faith and your hope in something other than yourself, that being the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on Calvary, He will save you. And He will allow you to understand the freedom and the forgiveness and the grace and mercy that he offers. So, Father, we pray that we would be able to take this message of hope and forgiveness out to a lost and dying world as we leave this place. Lord, we pray for those in our midst who couldn't make it out today, whether they're traveling or they're sick. I pray for my wife that you'd minister to her and others, Lord. We just ask that you would be gracious to us. And Father, we pray your blessing upon this day. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.